If you've been going to church for any time at all, I'll bet you've heard a preacher preach from 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And so the preacher preaches that, and guess what happens? Not a thing. Most of the time, not a thing. And I wonder if maybe things just haven't gotten that bad yet. If you understand what I'm trying to say to you is, maybe the reason that people are not actually praying for revival, maybe the reason that people are not saying, I'm going to confess my sins and therefore turn from my wicked ways, maybe the reason they're not doing that is because right now it hasn't gotten that bad. Well, let me give you a story. Maybe you can imagine with me. If we are as bad as I think that we're getting, especially in our country, then there is really no reason that we could ever expect that we will ever have any protection from God because of the outside forces that might come against us. And if that is true, and we are continuing on on a dismal path, then... It could be possible that if we don't have God's protection, that there could be maybe an invading army that would come into the United States and would take us over. And when we would find out then, as we have this invading and occupying army that is in this country, maybe then it would be bad enough. And if it's bad enough at that point... When we hear those words, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Maybe at that time we will actually start praying, and we will pray, and we will pray, and we will pray. And we're looking for someone who is coming to lead us out of this oppression that we're under, under this other, this rule from an outside force that is occupying our land at this point, and we cry out. And then one day, we hear the story of some guy who seems to be sent by God. He has done some amazing things. He has healed the sick. He's healed the lame, they're walking, and the blind are seeing, and the, and the deaf are hearing. And we even hear a story that he has even raised somebody up from the dead. And it's such that this occupying force, they don't keep us from our religious, our religious observances. And so we're all headed to the most religious city in the United States, Washington, D.C. I said, imagine with me, right? Okay, imagine, okay. And so we're headed in there and we go there for our Easter celebration because we want to, we really, really, really want to worship. We really, really, really want to tell God, we'll get it right this time. We'll get it right this time. And we hear of this man coming into the city. He's coming in. He has fulfilled everything that we know that you have to fulfill to, in order to be the one that is going to lead us out of the oppression that we're in So we run out there. We run out there with thousands, thousands of other people that are out there. We run out there, but are we silent? Or do we yell? Do we scream out to him? Do we encourage him? Do we call him who he is? 
Or do we just remain silent? Well, you see, that's not exactly the story that we have in Luke when we have the triumphal entry. But it's a taste of what these people were going through. Let me read you the story in Luke chapter 19. I'll start in 35. They have brought, at this point, they brought a, a colt, a, a donkey to Jesus. And it says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now let me retell the story in another way. Let's examine it for what it is. I think that you can clearly see right now that the crowd believed that Jesus was the Messiah. I think you're going to, it's hard not to catch this, that they thought he was the, uh, the Messiah. The Jewish men especially would have been schooled in the coming of the Messiah. They would have known the scriptures. They would have known the prophecy and the signs that they look for. And one of those is found in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's Here's Jesus coming in on this donkey. He's fulfilling all that they knew was necessary for him to be the new king. Not just from coming in the donkey, but all of the other signs that they'd heard about. Now, this is the situation that we have today. I mean, in reality, there are a lot of people that are looking for the signs in which they can say that Jesus is returning. This is the story. I mean, people are out there looking and looking for the signs. In fact, there are many books that have been written on the, on the subject. There's a lot of books. They've become very popular at the time. And, and I mean, in fact, there was a guy in this church at one time who was absolutely sure that Jesus was coming back during his lifetime. He's gone to be with the Lord now. I'm just telling you what has happened here. And so people have been looking for these, these kinds of signs. And they point to the signs and they say that Jesus is coming soon. But what did Jesus say about that? Matthew 24, 36 says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But even knowing this scripture, there are people who are still predicting the coming of Jesus. I believe that is a fruitless endeavor because Jesus himself said that only the Father himself knew when Jesus would return. But that's the reason that we must always be ready On that Palm Sunday, they had more than simply someone making a prediction. They had someone who's riding in on a donkey who has proof of who he is. And with that, they had hope. So why did they erupt in in joy because of this? I will tell you, joy erupts when a long-awaited hope is realized. This has been a long time coming. And that doesn't mean that all of these people trusted in him. I believe that some of them were simply fans that were not really followers. 
But they all had hope. They had all come to this conclusion, though, on their own. For each person comes to know Jesus as the Christ on his or her own. I think that a lot of times when I I talk to people and I say, who was the first person to say that Jesus was the Christ? A lot of people are going to say, well, it was Peter. The answer to that is not correct. I mean, in reality, John the Baptist had said it before any of this. And then Andrew heard John the Baptist say that, that uh, Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so he went after his brother Peter. Andrew goes to his, Peter, to his brother Peter. And, and it says in John chapter 1 verse 41, he said he found his own brother Simon. He said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So here we got Andrew proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Philip, <clears throat> Philip he goes and talks to, to Nathaniel. He goes into claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. He goes to, uh, in John chapter 1 verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him of of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. But Nathaniel doesn't believe right at first. In fact, is, is that that's kind of a nearby city, you know, a city that you've got a little competition with. You understand what I'm talking about, especially these small towns. You know, a small town has a competition with the other small town. We're better than them. They're better than us, wherever it goes, goes back and forth. And remember what Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what he says. He says, this is, this is, you know, how could this be the, uh, the uh, uh, Messiah? So when Jesus sees Nathanael, he says, behold, an Israelite in, which, in, in whom there is no deceit, no guile. And Nathanael says, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus said, you know, before Philip came to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, how does that make Jesus know him? And how does Nathaniel respond with what he responds with? And he says, when he hears this, in John chapter 1, verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, there must have been something going on under that fig tree. Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? There must have been something that was going on that only Nathaniel knew about and God knew about. Do you understand? Or else he wouldn't have responded in this way. Maybe, and I'm speculating here, maybe Nathaniel was praying, Oh God, show me the Messiah. Maybe Nathaniel is saying, may the, may the Messiah come to me and recognize me as being a, a person that is truthful and is always, I mean, doesn't have any deceit in him. Maybe that's the reason that, that it happened. I don't know what happened. But what I can tell you is, is that the timing in this was absolutely perfect, wasn't it? When, before Philip came to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Many miracles can be explained away. I got that. But it's the timing that proves them to be miracles. You remember the story of the man that came to Jesus and he he said, I've got my son and he's at the very point of death. And Jesus says, your son will live. And so the man leaves and he's on the way back to his hometown. He meets his servant and his servant says, I came to tell you that your son is getting better. He's going to live. He's, he's healing up right now. And, he's, and, and the man says, well, tell me what time did that 
Tell me what time that my son started to get better. When he, when he started to have life come back into him. And the, the man tells him the time. And, and it says in John 4, 53. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. Why is that? The timing. The timing on this. See, faith is so often born out of timing. I got a question in that, you know, the box that I told you guys to ask me questions, you know, and I will try to answer them. Some of them I won't be able to, I'm sure. But one of the questions was, why are there no signs and wonders today? I want you to tell you folks, there are signs and wonders today. Let me give you a couple of examples. We had a, when a, many years ago, I had this lady in my a discipleship group that I was, I was in. And her name is Jeannie. Jeannie had a tumor about, I guess it's about that big. I, I saw the MRI. I can't read MRIs, but they said this is where the tumor is. They pointed it out to me and I said, okay, I can, I can see that. And so they, they, she had a tumor. And so she had a tumor in the abdomen, and, and so they were going to try some radiation on that tumor, and they knew that because of where it was located, it was going to d- damage some of the organs within her body, and, and you know, they, they needed to get that another MRI because they wanted to make sure exactly where that thing was and, you know, be able to pinpoint it and be able to hit that with, a, you know, the radiation and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So in our discipleship group, we gathered around her, and we prayed over her. And then she went to the doctor. They did that other MRI and there was no tumor there. Not even a trace of it. She's alive to this day, by the way. I will say this. Could tumors go away? I think the answer is yes. I think they could. I think that there's a possibility that a tumor could go away. Maybe the equipment was messed up. I don't know what it was. But the timing was amazing, wasn't it? Let me tell you about another one. I had a lady come to our, our, uh, prayer, our uh, prayer meetings that we had on Wednesday. And her name was Margaret. And Margaret had a tumor behind her eye. And so she was going to have to have surgery. They were going to try to remove the tumor. And probably she was going to lose her eyesight. I don't know if that was going to be absolutely for sure. But certainly that was a possibility that they were going to try to do that. And so we gathered around Margaret. And we prayed over Margaret. And we prayed that that tumor would just simply go away. And so she goes in again for another MRI. She comes back the next Wednesday. We don't hear anything from her till Wednesday. She comes back to the Wednesday. She comes into the prayer meeting and she's exclaiming that there is no tumor behind her eye anymore. And she is telling everybody. In fact, she took over prayer meeting. I had no control over it after that point. And, I, and actually, I said to somebody the next day, I said, you know, wasn't, it strange? wasn't that funny how Margaret came in? She was so excited. And she was telling everybody about how God does miracles today. <laughs> and they said, you know, I said it was amazing. And they said, you should have heard her at Kroger's. <laughs> she was telling everybody. Telling everybody. Now... We do have signs and wonders, but you say, well, why don't we see those signs and wonders? Well, you find in Matthew 13, 58, you've got where it says of Jesus in Nazareth. It said he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. A lot of people believe that it's because they didn't have enough faith. That's not really the real reason. What happens is, as long as people are going to continue to explain away the miracles, God's not going to do them. 
Do you understand what I'm trying to say to you? God has purpose in all that he does, and he is going to receive the glory that he should receive. And when there is no glory to be given out, God's not doing the miracle. You understand, it's not going to be simply because, you know, they just didn't have enough faith for it to happen. It is because they had unbelief. They were going to explain it away. So sometimes that's the reason that we're not seeing the signs and wonders that we have today. But let me say this to you. There are signs and wonders that are going on. And sometimes they're not these miracle type things that we talk about in here. Like I just mentioned those two times the tumors disappeared. Sometimes it's something that goes along like this. You're sitting in church and you need a word from God. You need some reason for hope. And maybe you didn't think that even the preacher or the scriptures or anything else is going to tell you that that's the hope that you need to have into your heart. But suddenly something happens where the Holy Spirit takes maybe just a word or a couple of things that the preacher has said. And the Holy Spirit takes, takes it from there and speaks into your heart and starts to tell you of what you really need to know. And you say, God has spoken to me today. It was a miracle. I was in Friendly Baptist Church in Tyler, Texas, minding my own business, sitting on about the fourth or fifth pew back from the front. When the preacher said, what if it were the last time God had called me to salvation and I had told him no? And then he said, right behind it, and there was no reason to have said this. He said, what if it were the last time God had called me into the ministry? And I said, no. And at that very moment, I knew that God was calling me into the ministry. I knew it because the Holy Spirit spoke it into my heart. It scared me quite a bit, to tell you the truth. I had other people telling me that I was supposed to go into the ministry, but I told them I wasn't going until God told me that I was going into the ministry. And so I made that decision and I went, I, you know, and I, I acted on that decision because I want to tell you something, folks. There is no place in the Bible that it promises you that you'll get a second chance. There's not a place there. And if you think you're looking, say, oh, there's a second chance, there's a third chance. No, there is no place in the Bible you're promised a second chance. And it may be your first chance, but you better take it. And if salvation is, 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 uh, if if the Holy Spirit is speaking into you to say, come to Jesus today, you better take it now. You may not get another chance. Yet when Peter explained that Jesus was the Christ, speaking to the disciples, Jesus told them, Matthew 16, 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Most of the people in commentaries will say, well, it wasn't the proper time. And they are correct that it is, wasn't the proper time. But it wasn't trying to get the, uh, the, all the stars aligned. And the proper time was after the resurrection. The proper time was after the resurrection because that is when they could know their salvation. That was the proper time. See, the people before this, they believed that the Messiah would put everything back in order. They said there would be peace in heaven. Why do they say there's peace in heaven? Because they understand that God's plan was to redeem all of the world. God's plan for them, they thought, was that the Jews would now have their own nation again. And with that, they would restore things back in order. They, these people at this time were the servants of the Romans. They should have been sovereign, they thought. 
And that restoration of the Jewish nation would set things back into the proper order. So they expected, the Jews expected that they would expel the Romans and they would be their own nation again. But you realize that isn't what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to give a peace like they thought that it was peace. In fact, Jesus said, that's not the reason I came in the first place. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What he's saying is, is that if you give your heart to me, there will be people even within your own household who will come against you because of that. I remember an Arab, uh, an Arabic, uh, uh, an Iranian, actually, an Iranian a young man. We had come to know Christ when I was working in student ministry. His father was a surgeon and his father absolutely disowned him. And I thought about that. And yet I would say for this young man, he had peace. He had come to Jesus. So peace must be more than no conflict. It must be more than just no conflict. See, there are people that have no conflict, but they can be in turmoil. See, everything can be going great, and yet there can be anxiety all around you. You can have everything you want. And there will still be something that is missing and there's no peace there. On the other hand, there can be an absolute mess and you can still have peace. You will have, there's a peace that exceeds that peace of the world. Paul said to the Philippians, he said, you take this and you give it to the Lord. You take that which is making you anxious and you take it and you give it to him. And and guess what happens when you really, truly give it to him? He says in Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What Paul was saying is something that we need to hear even today. And that is, is that peace is not found on the earth. And it will not be found on this earth. You see, the world tells us that we will have peace when we have enough physical pleasure, when we have enough money, when we have enough possessions, when we have enough admiration of other people, when we have enough power. That's the way the world tells us that we're going to have peace. But what the world doesn't tell us is you try eating that stuff and you will never have enough. You'll be hungry for the rest of your life because it will not fill you up. All the physical pleasures of the possessions and the money and the admiration and the power, it will not fill you up. You see, the world longs to create peace without God. It longs to create peace. And it even tries to warn you. You'll hear people tell you, you don't need to go follow Jesus. That could be the worst decision of your life. It could take you down paths that you don't want to go. We see the world is afraid of losing its grip on you. But I will tell you that Jesus is the only true peace because he brings the peace of heaven. Maybe these people that are yelling on the side of the roads, there was Jesus coming in. Maybe they didn't know that, but they were telling the truth when they did. See, for them, there wasn't a greater time for the coming of the Messiah. 250,000 families would come into Jerusalem They would have over 2 million Jews in Jerusalem. It was Passover. There was enough of them that their number alone could outnumber and overwhelm the the Roman soldiers that were there. It seemed to be the moment they were waiting for. 
It's the moment that made all the earthly sense. But that's not what Jesus came for. A military win only brings a temporary peace. Believe me, a fallen world cannot live at peace. There is an insatiable desires of this world. Those physical pleasures, those possessions, that money, that admiration, that power. Those things cannot be satisfied. Not ever. And will always pull us toward conflict. Conflict again and again. So the Pharisees watch the proceedings and they are dismayed. You see, surely this demonstration was going to get the attention of the Romans. And surely they would come and crack down on the Jews for this. And by the way, God could not be pleased with this man because he's claiming to be the Messiah. They're claiming to be the Messiah. And he's getting the praise of men and they shouldn't, he shouldn't have done that. And so, and if he were truly the Messiah, wouldn't he have come to them first so that they could give him their approval? Wouldn't that make sense for all of these people? You see, there will always be people like them who believe that they are so right that nothing else could be God's will. There are always going to be people like that. Evidence is of no consequence to those who know they are right, even if they're not right. They will not listen. And when they will not admit they are wrong, So Jesus uses hyperbole to rebuke the disciples, or the Pharisees, rather. Hyperbole is an exaggeration to prove a claim. See, I've probably told you a million times about hyperbole, right? That was hyperbole, by the way, folks. I haven't told you a million times anything. You realize what I'm trying to say to you. And so Jesus used this hyperbole, and what he was saying is, he wasn't saying that stones talk. I don't, he wasn't saying that stones were going to start talking. But what he was saying was, the stones themselves will speak before the Pharisees will see. That's what he's saying to them. Just like the people of that day, I know the Messiah is coming back. I promise you that. I don't have a clue when. It could be today, though. And so the Messiah is coming. Will there be silence? Pray with me. 